Welcome to the new season of the People's Podcast. Today we're going to be talking about episode one of season five of Game of Thrones, titled The Wars to Come. As usual, we'll talk about what happened in the episode from beginning to end, following whatever tangents take our fancy, and answer some more general questions afterwards. This episode we'll be changing it up a bit. John's going to be taking us through the episode and coming up with the questions. And Kate's going to try very hard not to spoil any of us, because Kate has read the books. Yes. I'm at the obsessive end of the spectrum about Game of Thrones. Yes. Read so, and reread the books, I think. It, and reread the books. In part. I will be <laughs> biting my cheek all season to make sure that no spoilers issue forth from my mouth. Excellent. Well, I suppose the benefit that you, dear listeners, will have that I will not is that if she does make a slip of the tongue, I'll edit them out, whereas I'm at Kate's mercy. <laughs> <laughs> this episode opens with two girls walking in a forest. They come across a hut which appears to be deep within the forest. They go inside and find a woman, who is a bit of a disappointment to the blonde girl, and she demands to have her fortune told by this person, who she accuses of being a witch. The witch demands a taste of her blood, and then says she can ask three questions, and goes on to predict that the blonde girl will marry the king and become queen, but won't be queen forever, and will be overtaken by a younger, prettier girl. A very Snow White kind of story. And she talks about her having children, crowned in gold, and also shrouded in gold as well, which Mm. implies that all of her children are going to die. And then we get the confirmation that this is indeed Cersei, when the brunette girl tries to get her to leave and calls out her name. We then see Cersei arriving at the Great Sept for Tywin's funeral. She goes in and makes all the other lords and ladies wait outside while she has a moment with her father. Jamie's already in there, and they have a sort of an argument about what they should be doing now. And Jamie's sort of saying, we need to stick together because everyone's going to be coming after our stuff. And all Cersei seems to care about is getting revenge upon Tyrion for killing their father. I think Jamie isn't really that concerned. <laughs> and it's quite ironic, given that in the last season, Cersei's behaviour in telling Tywin about her and her brother was the impetus for Jamie to go, fuck that, I'm going to help Tyrion. The important thing in the conversation between Cersei and Jamie is their different perceptions of the danger that now faces their family. Yes. The Lannisters are obviously in a much weaker position now that Tywin's gone. Yes, because of course the question of who is now Lord must be arisen, because obviously Tyrion's out of the picture and Jamie's a Kingsguard. Yes, and I think even more importantly than that, although that is a factor for the Lannisters, although the king is still alive, the de facto ruler of this country has just been killed. Mm. Tywin Lannister was the ruler of the Seven Kingdoms, no matter who was king. He is now gone, and it's not at all clear who his heir or successor will be. Yes, there is a power vacuum. Yes, although it's clear that Cersei doesn't think there's any sort of vacuum. No. Well, it's not the first time that Cersei has been rather self-obsessed. Yes. (laughs) So in the next scene, we see Varys break Tyrion out of his travel box, which Tyrion appears to have been in for quite some time, given his dishevelled state. Mm. 
and apparently having to push poo out of the holes. <laughs> oh, wow. And all Tyrion wants to do is have a drink, which doesn't actually agree with him terribly well. Mm. But Varys gets right down to business, talking to Tyrion about what are they going to do now, trying to basically enlist Tyrion in his plan to save Westeros. At least initially, Tyrion isn't really having very much of it. Yes, although as you mentioned, Tyrion is probably at the low ebb of a nausea cycle. Yes. Then we go to Marine, and we see the Great Harpy being pulled down from the top of the pyramid, and we see one of the Unsullied go into a brothel, and use a prostitute to get some sort of mothering, it appears. Affection, anyway. Yeah. Which I have to admit, when he went in there, I was wondering, what exactly are you going in there for? There's quite a bit of debate. The Unsullied are referred to as cut. Mm. and as eunuchs, but there's a whole bunch of versions of eunuchs. Mm. Like, is it the root and berries, or is it just the ball sack that gets cut off? There's a whole lot of versions, and it's I don't think ever explicitly been said on the show mm. which version of that is operating here. Yeah, even in the case that they're just castrated, you would expect there to be varying levels of desire, I guess, amongst the Unsullied, because I'm obviously... The testicles are not the only place of testosterone production in the body, but they are a major source of testosterone, and that's a driver of the sex drive in men. But there'd be some individual variation there. So you might have a few freaks amongst the Unsullied who don't need their balls to feel horny. Well, not just a few freaks. I mean, the only historical equivalent that I can think of for the Unsullied is the Castrati in yes. Italy. Yes. And there's plenty of documented evidence that the Castrati were a bunch of horny bastards. Yes. Like, their sex drive absolutely survived mm. castration at a young age. Mm. So anyway, this Unsullied visits a brothel, and as he's being nurtured, I guess, by one of the prostitutes... Mm. Is, he's... It, is it nurtured when you set someone up to have their throat slit? <laughs> Well, that's, that's what he thinks is going that's on. That's true. And yes, then all of a sudden he's murdered. Mm. And the prostitute and a person in quite an elaborate mask watch him bleed to death. Mm. Quite horribly. He knows what's going on. He spends a few seconds, obviously, being aware of what's happening to him and then dying. Drowning in his own blood. Then we see Daenerys, obviously having just been told about what's happened. The Unsullied has been found dead. She's been told that a group called the Sons of the Harpy are responsible. Mm-hmm clearly some sort of religious cult or no, following. the Sons of the Harpy, they're a political group. The Harpy is the symbol for the slavers. So the Harpy of oh. Marine and the Harpy of Astapor, these were all the symbols for the ruling class. So the Sons of the Harpy are a group of... Uh, the Tea Party. Uh, yeah, they're <laughs> basically, but with better masks. They are, well, rebels makes them sound cool and fun, but they're rebels in favour of the old mm. order against Danny. Yes, a little bit like the Scarlet Pimpernel, heroes of the ruling class. Yes, and if one of them behind those masks isn't Richard E. Grant, I think they've missed a trick. Okay, well that's very interesting. I just assumed that they were a religious order. No. Because I associate terrible acts of cruelty and killing to religious fanaticism. But never to political fanaticism. Well, yes, I suppose so. But not Your to me. hatred of not... religion, John Casey, <laughs> is beginning to blur your vision. I'm okay with that. Fair enough. <laughs> Daenerys says that she wants the Unsullied to be buried in, what did she call it? I can't Temple remember. of the Spirits or something like that? Yeah. She wants him to be given a burial that was previously only available to the Masters. Yes, and this is going to antagonise the mm. Sons of the Harpy. And Daenerys says, yes, of course, that's the point. Mm. Because if I can antagonise them, then they'll make a mistake and I can kill them all. 
Then we see Missandei talk to Grey Worm as mm-hmm. he and a bunch of the other Unsullied are getting ready for patrol. The others leave and she asks Grey Worm why would an Unsullied go to a brothel? He says, I don't know. Did you I, believe him? No, I didn't believe him. I didn't either. I also thought Missandei is very naive. Well, I don't think she's asking why would anyone go to a brothel? No, no, I know, but people are varied and complex mm. and people go to brothels to get all sorts of needs fulfilled and not all of them are what all of us consider to be sexual or obviously sexual. So but I think she was just asking for detail about that. Yeah, well... Mm. She was a little doe-eyed while she did it. I thought she sounded quite naive. I think the other thing that's going on in this scene is that Missandei is trying in a very shy, not quite able to come out with it kind of way to find out what could happen between her and Grey Worm. Mm. And that's why she wants to know why a nun might want to go to a brothel. Yeah, it's a very roundabout way of doing it, isn't it? She couldn't just say, so what, mate? Are we together or what? Are we going steady? It would be an amazing scene. (laughs) It would, wouldn't it? (laughs) You can imagine the uh, Australian version of Game of Thrones. Oh, no. <laughs> Are you going to be my mister? Oh, you Sheila. Am I your Sheila? I love everything about them. It's making me really happy. <laughs> Next we see Jon Snow training some recruits at Castle Black. Mm. We see Sam and Gilly in the background, and they have a little talk. They continue to be awesome. Well, Gilly asks Sam while he's not training, and Sam's like, I don't think I need training. I've killed a White Walker and a Then. And I thought, hmm, luck. Immense luck. And Gilly's expression when he says, <laughs> I'm hardly a new recruit. She just sort of looks at him with this, wow, expression on her face. Yeah. Which is good, because up until now, I've kind of thought of Gilly as not very world-wise. I think she's been very sheltered. Yes. But she knows bullshit when she hears it. <laughs> yes, clearly. <laughs> Melisandre says to Jon Snow that Stannis wants to talk to him. They take the elevator up to the top of the wall, and mm-hmm. on the way, Melisandre asks Jon Snow if he's a virgin, and Jon Snow says no, and she says good. She's cougaring the hell out of him. And she confirms her status as creepy predator. Yeah. What did you think of her claim that she doesn't feel the cold? I think she was just horny. <laughs> I think she's in that elevator thinking about Jon Snow's massive sword. I think that kept her warm on the journey up. There's obviously the possibility there's something supernatural going on. We know that there is something supernatural going on with the Red God because we've seen someone come back from the dead. That's true. Because of his invocation. So there's always that possibility. But I'm just going to go with Horny for the time being. Warm cheeks is not that special. John and Melisandre get to the top of the wall and Stannis asks John to try to convince Mance Raider to bend the knee. And in exchange for his loyalty and the wildlings fighting for Stannis, Stannis will give them their freedom and make them citizens of the Seven Kingdoms Mm. and give them land to live on and basically everything that they wanted to get by attacking the wall. They wanted to hide behind it and Stannis is saying, well, if you fight for me, I'll let you do that. Yes, although I think the key thing here is... They wanted to take the wall and hide behind it on their own terms. Well, yes. Whereas what he's offering is... I mean, you heard a lot of Egret stuff in the previous seasons where she was laughing at, kneeling to your local lord. A lot of the stuff that they hate about what they consider to be southerners, everyone south of the wall, Mm. is the stuff that Stannis is asking them to embrace. Yeah. 
It's Better than like it's, death, though. Yeah, I mean, and it's not a bad deal from Stannis' point of view. No. I mean, this is the beautiful thing about this story, both in the books and on the show, that a lot of the time it's not good guys and bad guys and guys wearing dark hats and guys wearing white hats. There's a bunch of people who all have perfectly reasonable motivations that just are contrary to each other. Yes. From Stannis' point of view, this is a pretty good offer. And from the Northerners' point of view, it's not what they were after, but is it good enough? In a situation where they've been beaten, I would have thought that it would sound pretty good. Yes, but the problem that the wildlings face is that in their culture, you're either beaten and killed, or you're beaten and you run away, or you win. Beaten and living under someone else in a submissive way is not something they have built into their culture at all. No, no, I understand that, but we'll, we'll get to it. Jon Snow goes into it when he talks to Mance Raider, so mm-hmm. I'll leave that part of the conversation for then. Sure. The next scene is in the Vale, and we see Littlefinger and Sansa watching Robin, quote-unquote, train. And Robin is just the worst. He's so bad. He's terrible. He's, he can't swing a sword without He doesn't seem squealing. to be able to stand upright. Like, he's really <laughs> terrible at anything physical. Yes. The Lord of the Vale, who's there, whose name I can't remember, describes him as swinging a sword like a girl with palsy. Which <laughs> is both sexist and ableist, and yet super funny. It's hilarious, yeah. <laughs> Next we see Brienne and Podrick. So happy. <laughs> the Brienne and Podrick show should have its own spin-off, really. Brienne is clearly upset at losing Arya. Yes. She had this oath to fulfil to Lady Catelyn Stark, and I think she must be feeling that she's failed. I wondered why she was so grumpy with Podrick, because I was sitting there thinking, didn't we do this already? Like, you had the episode where you thought he shouldn't really be with you, and then you sort of got over it, and it was great, and you guys were awesome. But then I realised that what she was doing was taking out her and herself on Podrick. Well, there's also the fact that Podrick totally dropped the ball by not keeping an eye on Arya oh, yeah. while she was fighting the Hound. Seriously, Pod? Seriously? You know, It's there... interesting she didn't reproach him with that. She talked about the fact that Arya didn't want her help. That's true. And of course, the whole time she's really intently cleaning the sword that is the symbol of the promise she made to Jamie. Yeah. It's called Oathkeeper. He gave it to her to go save these two girls. Yes. And to her mind, at the first test, the girls didn't want her help. Yeah. Well, one of them didn't want her help. So Brienne is upset and she's trying to convince Pod to leave. And her justification is that they're a long, long way from King's Landing. No one knows who Podrick is here. So that his reason for leaving with her is no longer a thing. That he doesn't need to worry about his safety anymore. And so could he please go away? And, I mean, she's not wrong about that. The only reason for him to follow her now is to follow her. And she obviously doesn't feel worthy of that or comfortable with that. Yes. Brienne says that she's only ever wanted to follow a noble lord and all of them are dead and all the rest are bastards. Pretty much. (laughs) So she's at a fairly low ebb. I think it's interesting that while Brienne is talking about how upset she is that she's never found a leader worth following, a lord worth following... Podrick seems to be starting to look at her in that same way. He's found someone that he thinks is worth following, who's good and honest and does what they say they're going to do. And while she is bemoaning the fact that such leaders don't exist, he's starting to see that she is a leader like that. Yes, I thought exactly the same thing during that scene. I thought it was a... uh... A little bit sad that she's obviously so consumed by her inability to find this kind of person. She doesn't have, I guess, the confidence to have that self-realisation that actually she embodies all of those qualities. 
if that's what you want to follow in someone else, it makes quite a lot of sense that you would also strive to embody them yourself. Hmm. And it's nice to see that Podrick likes Brienne for that. We've seen Podrick assisting Tyrion because they were friends. He obviously had a lot of respect for Tyrion. And I think that might have been for quite a few of the same reasons. I think he saw in Tyrion, although Tyrion was certainly underhanded and did what he needed to do, he was basically a decent person. Mm. And like Varys says later on in this episode, he has compassion. That's a quality that Podrick liked in him, and Podrick, I think, sees some parallels in Brienne. Yeah. So, yes, totally agree with that assessment. Then... Very, very timely. Sansa and Littlefinger travel not 50 metres away from where Brienne and Pod are. Coy. Very coy show. <laughs> in a carriage, it looks like. On their way to the west. Sansa's education continues. With Littlefinger talking to her about who is to be trusted and why he might have told that Lord of the Vale that they were going one place, but in fact they're going another. Mm-hmm. Sansa sort of points out, but there are all these people around who are going to know where you're going. And Littlefinger says, ah yes, but I pay them lots of money. (laughs) (laughs) And also, they've seen what I do to people who betray me. So that's his explanation and justification for trusting the people he does trust. In his defence, the people who are escorting you have to know where you're going. Oh yeah. But at least you can throw up some dust at the place you're leaving. Yeah. Pretty hard to lie to them about where you're going. Yes. Sansa asks, where are they going then? And Littlefinger says, to a land so far away that even Cersei Lannister can't get her hands on you. Yes. Which is quite cryptic. Very intriguing. Do you have any theories about what that is without giving any spoilers away? Well, I can't give spoilers away because I actually don't know oh, good. what they're doing Well, <laughs> So in that context, the Vale's not just a fair distance from King's Landing, but also quite insular. Less gossip is escaping the Vale than from anywhere else. Geographically, it's really inaccessible. Yes, it's some pretty craggy land. Yeah, and I mean, that's how it's managed to stay the hell out of all of this, is by that isolation. So you would think that that was isolation enough, but where are places that are further away? There's either crossing the Narrow Sea, which is going to the same place that Tyrion's just ended up, or there's heading north. Those are really your two options. Given who's in control of the north at Mm -hmm. the moment, I wondered whether they weren't going to... What's that marshy place called? The river? The Neck. The Neck, that's right. I really want someone to go to the Neck, but I don't think Littlefinger's going there. Okay. The Neck is deeply loyal to the Starks, Mm. which would be good for her, not so good for him. Right. In fact, all of the descriptions of the Neck that exist, he wouldn't get on that well in the Neck. Right. Well, we'll just have to wait and see what Littlefinger means by that then. Certainly. I'm excited about it, though. (laughs) So next we see what looks like Tywin Lannister's wake. Mm-hmm. It's the party part of the funeral, where everyone's standing around and eating and drinking. And in the space of about 30 seconds, oh. Cersei rebuffs both Solaris and Grand Maester Pycelle, trying to offer her their condolences. Which, you know, you can understand. Solaris is supposed to be her betrothed that she never wanted to marry, and obviously everything he's saying is just for the sake of it, and we all know that she hates Grand Maester Pycelle. So that's not really surprising. Cersei, <laughs> but it is very amusing. It is very amusing. Cersei encounters her uncle and her cousin, and her cousin seems to be going through some kind of religious fanaticism that her uncle's not that impressed about. Well, so this is cousin Lancel, Ooh. and Lancel's the young guy that she was boffing while Jaime was imprisoned under Rob Stark. This is the guy who was also the king's attendant. 
and later on, he got very badly injured at the Battle of the Blackwater. All right. So when she talks about his recovery, he got injured to the point where everyone thought he was going to die, and then he's sort of recovered and been cared for by maesters and other religious people, and he's come out a bit of a convert, obviously. And this is an important sect that he's part of. So he's under the faith of the Seven, but there's a whole lot of ways to be a follower of the Seven. Yes. And one of them is the poor followers, Mm. some of whom are genuinely poor, and others who are wealthier but take on the trappings of poverty because they feel that it's a way to... Humble yourself. Humble themselves before the gods. Yeah. So that sect is called Sparrows. Hmm. Cersei has a conversation with her cousin, and he really has got religion. (laughs) He starts sort of proselytising to her. He clearly feels guilty about having boffed his cousin and for having poisoned King Robert's wine. Yes. Is that something that you knew before this episode? I knew his wine had been poisoned. Wasn't it theorised? Like, in the show. Wasn't it kind of... Oh, okay. I couldn't remember if it was or not. If it wasn't, we definitely had a conversation about it. I did definitely know about it. It was not a surprise to me to have that confirmed. And was not a surprise to me that Cersei organised it. Oh, certainly not. (laughs) The interesting thing about him raising it here... I mean, obviously it highlights to us, the audience, that Lancel knows things that could seriously harm Cersei. yes. But when that's presented in combination with his new piety, the religion of the Seven is the one that's most closely similar to Christianity, Mm. including the idea that maybe you would confess to your priest. Yes, I thought that. So he's got religion in a bad way, and he's (laughs) got a lot of sins he wants to unburden himself about. Mm. Who has he unburdened himself to? Yes, and of course, maybe he'll have an accident before he manages to unburden to anyone else. Yes. So many stairways in King's Landing. So many poisoned bottles of wine. So many crossbows. <laughs> Next we see Solaris in bed with, I've written here, Oliver the Prozzy. It is an accurate description. <laughs> this is the same Oliver that Solaris was seduced by on the orders of Littlefinger. Yes. And so clearly this has continued either through Littlefinger's arrangement or through the fact that Oliver just likes boffing Solaris. Or Quite... that Oliver enjoys being paid by Solaris. That too. Solaris is not bad looking. It's a virile young man. So, you know, it has its own rewards, I suspect. <laughs> anyway, Marjorie walks in on them and she looks sort of startled, but not shocked. Annoyed rather than phased. Yes, yes. I mean, she's clearly very much acquainted with what her brother does. I mean, when Marjorie was married to Renly in their bedchamber, she offers to have her brother come in and help Renly get it up, if mm-hmm. that's what he needs. Yep. She's not embarrassed by that at all. No, she's an open-minded <laughs> lady. But she does make Oliver leave because she wants to have a word with Solaris. I think her original stated purpose is true. Like, we've actually got to get going. We're late. Yeah, yeah, you know. yeah, yeah. But she also criticises Solaris for not being more discreet, and Loris counters that by saying, why would I bother? Everybody knows that I like boys. Everybody knows everything about everyone. And I thought, well, that's kind of true. I mean, everyone knows a lot about other people, but not everything. It seems a little careless to me, this sort of attitude. Not wise. There's a very big difference between everyone knows that you're gay and everyone actually knowing it because a young man has been caught in your room or they've seen you with a young guy or there's a very... A young guy walks out naked. Yeah. (laughs) There's a lot of stuff that everyone knows that no one actually knows or very few people actually know. Yes. We could call it the Christopher Pine system of everyone knows. (laughs) 
Marjorie also says that Solaris should not keep his betrothed waiting, and Solaris poo-poos this idea now that Tywin's dead. He thinks there is no power on Earth that is going to make Cersei marry him now. Which is a fair point. It was only happening because Tywin was insisting on it. And Solaris says, so now you've got to deal with her, because she's going to be staying here, and she's going to be your mother-in-law, and you're welcome to her, basically, isn't that what he's saying? And she really has a touch of the Lady Olinas about her when she (laughs) says, perhaps. Yes, she does. It was great. I hope that she's taken a page out of her grandmother's book there, because Lady Olena is awesome. Yes. And I hate Cersei. Everyone would win. (laughs) Everyone would win. We then go back to Varys and Tyrion. And Varys is again working on Tyrion, trying to get him to see that there is yet purpose in this life, and that bringing stability to Westeros is it. Yes. And And he deploys the anger-hope action approach (laughs) masterfully. He does, doesn't he? Yeah. Mm. And basically, he does convince Tyrion to go to Marine, albeit with a lot of wine. Yes. That's the the compromise they reach. That's the compromise they reach. And the surprise of the conversation is that Varys is getting on Daenerys' train. Yes. Or it seems to be, anyway. Or has always been on it. Yes. He makes quite clear that at the time of the rebellion, he was very much in favour of the Targaryen rule and thought that the Baratheons taking the throne was something dreadful. Yes. I think the thing that's interesting about these two scenes is that what they add up to is a picture of Varys, not just as a mover and shaker himself, but as part of some sort of organised group Mm. who are working to manoeuvre politics. Yes. Which we had some hint of in those first few episodes in season one. Remember when Arya overheard him meeting with someone in the dungeons of the palace? Yeah. And that was Illyrio, his friend in Pentos, who organised the marriage of Daenerys to Khal Drogo. Mm-hmm. And there are all these links between these different manoeuvrings, as much as they appear to be happening on opposite sides of the world. But this is the first time Varys has really just come out and said, actually, I'm on a team that you're <laughs> not even aware of existing, mm. and that team has a plan. Yeah. We'll be interested to see where that goes. And also, how Daenerys might receive a Lannister rallying to her cause. A Lannister who killed Tywin Lannister. Yeah, but still a Lannister. That's true. But she has received a lot of people who would otherwise be considered riffraff for one reason or another. She's always been a fairly open-minded ruler. That is true. Speaking of Daenerys, that's where we go next. And she's talking to the emissary that she sent to Yunkai. Mm-hmm. He's saying that they've agreed to hand power over to a council, which will be a power-sharing arrangement, but which she will have the final say about all the important matters. He also brings back a request from them that she authorise the reopening of the fighting pits, and she basically says no several times. No, in several ways, (laughs) very clearly. Very clearly, and then she says, how many more times do I have to say no before you fuck off? And yes, she says that she's not into human cockfighting. The cities in Slaver's Bay definitely have a ruling class, but most of the way it's described, a bit of this is shady memory, but there aren't really single rulers. There's a sort of an oligarchy going on at the top. So that idea that there's someone whose word is just law is quite alien to them. And that, Mm. I think that came through in this scene. When he's trying to still negotiate with her and he's talking about all the compromises and negotiations involved in ruling. And And she's like, like, no, I'm not a politician. I'm a queen. It was a great line. It was. So next we see Daenerys engaging in a bit of pillow talk Mm -hmm. with Dario. And he basically tells her that she's wrong. 
her decision not to reopen the fighting pits is the wrong one. He says that he's only where he is because of the fighting pits. Which I have to say, I didn't find a super strong argument to have them opened. I mean, he must be one in a thousand for whom it was beneficial. He even mentions them in his story. All Mm. the people he defeated died, and it didn't work out too great for them. So I didn't find that a particularly convincing (laughs) argument. But he then goes on to say that she doesn't look strong enough. She's not appearing strong. And she says that, what are you talking about? I've got my guards on the streets. And he's like, yes, but you're not known as the queen of guards. You're known as the queen of fucking dragons. Mother of dragons. (laughs) Where are your dragons, basically? Yeah. And this prompts her to go down to see her dragons, the two that she locked away. Mm. It's clear that they've been down there for a while because they're a lot bigger. They're huge. And Daenerys is not at all confident approaching them. And you can see why, because they're fucking angry. Yes, They're clearly acting as a metaphor for her power and for her starting to feel like her power has gotten away from her and is out of control. Mm. She's taken over these three cities now. She's trying to rule Marine. She's kind of trying to rule the other two cities from afar to some extent. She feels like she's made all these promises to the slave class that she's freed and now she's actually got to deliver on them. Mm. And the power and the promises she's made as a result of that power have kind of gotten away from her. Mm. And I feel like her uncertainty about the dragons, which are very much her talisman, yes, is a metaphor for that. In the less metaphorical realm, mm. I also think that this is the coming to a head of an issue which I've been wondering about for the last two seasons, which is that, fine, her ancestors were dragon lords. They bred dragons and they trained dragons and that's what they did. There has got to be more to it than tricking them into thinking you're their parents. And the whole time I've been thinking, there's going to come a point where that's not going to wash anymore. They're going to grow up. Mm. It's normal for animals to no longer abide by their parents' commands anymore. Yep. So what's going to happen when that point is reached? And it seems to have been reached now. Yes. I wonder whether there is going to be some movement in terms of, I don't know, a new character arising or perhaps a search being initiated to discover more dragon lore in some way. Maybe Daenerys decides that, actually, if I'm going to control these things, I need to know more about them. I need to research what my ancestors did. Or maybe someone just turns up and says, so I figure you're going to be having problems right about now. Here's what I know. Maybe that kind of thing will go on. Or she just never gets control of them. Well, I've got a pretty strong inkling about what's going to happen, so I'm going to say Maybe you should not say it then. (laughs) But uh, that's been what I've been wondering about for the past couple of seasons. Mm. I've been expecting this moment to happen, and here it is, and I'll be interested to see how she deals with it, or how the story deals with it. Jon Snow is talking to Mance Raider, trying to convince him to bend the knee to King Stannis. And it's very much a doer-northerner off. It is. I found Mance Raider's reasons... I understood them, but I also found them not hugely convincing. Which elements? Well, saying that these people respect me because I wouldn't bend the knee. That's a large part of of how I've managed to rally these people, is by understanding them and understanding their culture, understanding what makes them them, and that's not bending the knee to a southern lord. And doing that would mean that all of that was undone. And basically what he was saying was that if I do this, I won't even be their king anymore. That's kind of what he was saying. They won't follow me if I do this. So he seemed to sort of be implying that what Stannis was asking would defeat the purpose of what he was after. Yes, I think that's absolutely one of the things he was saying. 
But I wonder what the alternative is for his people. Is it that you either agree to this deal where, fine, you have to accept these things which are against your culture, but you get to live, and fine, some of you have to fight, but the point is that some of you will get to live, or you're all just going to be killed. Is that the alternatives? Because I know which one I would pick in that circumstance. Yes, but you're assuming that people behave in a perfectly logical way. And that's not the way they behave. Yeah, well... I also think that in the vast majority of cases, when faced with a choice between death and not death, people pick not death. Yes, but when faced with a choice... Because it's not an immediate choice between death and not death. When faced with a choice between self-interest and culture, habit, illogic... People all over the world make shitty choices every day. I mean, this is a group of people who are, up until Mads Raider turns up, at war with each other. Like, they don't even really have a single shared identity. Oh, no. Well, they still don't, I don't think. No. But isn't the threat of death fairly imminent at this point? I mean, Stannis has defeated them. They're all obviously much more convinced than the people south of the wall. But the threat of death isn't Stannis. Stannis isn't going to kill an entire people. He just has to not let them through. Yeah. And they'll dissipate back to their homes and try and live out the winter. The real threat... Is the others. Is the, the others. White, the White Walkers. And the thought that this is going to be a particularly bad winter and there's going to be a lot of others when there hasn't been in the past. Mm. But if you're faced with totally abandoning your sense of identity and thinking, well, I've lived through three winters so far, maybe I can live out another one. Yeah, alright. You make your case. But it doesn't make sense to me. There's also the story of Mance Raider himself. This is a guy who used to be a member of the Night's Watch, who had such a philosophical objection to their control over what Night's Watchmen can be, and fell in love with the freedom of being north of the Wall, and who was willing to give up his entire life for that belief. Mm. There's also that happening in these scenes. It's also his story, and his unwillingness to bow. Yeah, there's also the argument that leadership means doing what it takes to get your people to survive. If he genuinely thinks these people aren't going to survive beyond the wall, then he should have at least tried to convince them. Which is why the argument exists, and I think is a really strong one, that the moment he kneels, they're not his people. He actually can't surrender on behalf of them, because if he surrenders, they won't follow him. Yeah, but at that point, what exactly does he have to lose by doing it? If he believes that surrendering will do nothing and achieve nothing because the people won't follow him, then it's just entirely his decision. Mm. And his decision to follow what he's believed in personally for the last whatever number of years Mm. is just a personal one. I suppose I'm looking at it from the point of view that it's not an absolute given that they would just desert him if he surrendered. I'm sort of looking at it as there being a possibility that they wouldn't. A possibility that if he said to them, this is how we actually get to live, because there is no chance of living any other way. This is how we can live. That maybe there's a chance that they wouldn't. He, and everyone else who has any experience of North of the Wall, thinks that there isn't. That that's an incredibly remote possibility. Okay. If it was me, I would try everything, even if I thought it wasn't going to work. I'm not sure I could live with myself if I hadn't tried literally everything. He won't have to live with himself. (laughs) No. No, he won't. That's convenient. So Mance Raider basically says no. In the next scene, it's Mance Raider's execution. He gets escorted out and into the courtyard, and Stannis asks him for the last time to bend the knee and swear loyalty. 
Mance doesn't do that, but he does wish King Stannis luck in the wars to come. He's quite jolly, all in all. Yes, it was a meeting of equals. He's sort of saying as one king to another, good luck with all those wars, hope you have better luck than I did. Mm. He gets tied to a stake, and Melisandre steps forward and says some religious bullshit about the Red God, and lights the pyre. Yes. And I've got here written down, Stannis' wife looks proper crazy. She really does. (laughs) She's doing a very convincing zealot. She is. All the shots included her and her daughter, and while she was looking increasingly gleeful, her daughter was looking less and less okay with what was going on. Yes. I was very pro-Shireen in those scenes. (laughs) It is really just guff, as far as I'm concerned. The Red Woman's speechifying. Mm Mm-hmm. But now that she's in this environment that is all about cold and all about ice and all about the opposites of fire, Mm. the imagery that she's about, the burning of the man, her walking around saying how warm she is all the time, (laughs) all that stuff is thrown into stark relief against the background she's now in. So she lights the pyre. Jon Snow looks like he's not happy with what he's witnessing. He appears to leave because he doesn't want to watch. And then, just as the fire seems to start to consume Mance Raider, he's shot with an arrow in the chest. He looks up to see Jon Snow with a bow. Yes. Having given him mercy. The way that he was starting to make noises, it sounded like Jon killed him basically before he could scream. Yes. From the moment the bonfire was lit, I was waiting for the scream. Mm. I was very aware of it. I heard the kind of beginnings of the groaning and the kind of, uh, you know, sort of noises. And I found myself waiting for the scream. And then there was this anti-climax with the arrow hitting the chest. I thought it was very effective. Yes. Sort Um, of delayed gratification thing. And then just removed gratification. (laughs) Yeah. Because it never comes. And that's the end of the episode. Mm. What happens to the wildlings now? Well, I think it remains to be seen. There are three power groups up at the wall at the moment. There's the leadership of the wildlings. There's Stannis and his army. Mm. But there's also the leadership at the wall. Which is actually yet to be determined still. Yes, and one of the things that was mentioned in that earlier scene was that the Night's Watch elect their own leader. That's how it works. I mean, they elect them for life, but they elect them. And so when Lord Mormont died up at Crassus Keep, he vacated the position. Mm. Obviously, there's been rather a lot going on since then, so they only just got round to the election. Yes. But once there's a leader of the Night's Watch, that person will also have some say in what is to be done with the Wildlings. Mm. I wonder whether the Wildling leaders are now going to be given the same choice that Mance Raider was given by Stannis. Whether Stannis is now going to turn to them and say, well, the same applies to you. If you fight for me, then I will allow you to become citizens, etc, etc. To be honest, if I was Stannis, that seems like the most logical thing to do. Yes. You wonder how far down the chain of command he can get. One of the strong tropes within the show is really that, except for the Night's Watch, no one has a freaking clue about the Wildlings. Mm. Like, when Stannis, as the Southern King, turns up and tries to be a king near them, their conception of what that means is just totally different to his. Mm. So the interaction is very unpredictable, I think. Mm. The other question that immediately rose in my mind at the end of the episode is what happens to Jon Snow? He's robbed at least Melisandre of something that she wanted to happen. He's robbed Selesa some jollies, that's for sure. That's right. He's disobeyed the orders of a king. Not his king. No. That's the key thing. Not his king. 
But still, he's the king in the near vicinity who seems to be controlling what's going on most of the time. There's a really clear delineation of leadership for the Night's Watch. Mm. They don't report to a king. Yeah. And it would be a politically very dangerous manoeuvre for Stannis to try and undermine that Mm. in any way. Would it though? I mean, there aren't many Night's Watchmen anymore. They are much depleted, but there are hundreds of them. And there's the other two towers... Mm. And they're the ones who actually know how to survive up there. That's true. And run everything. Mm. And it's not in his interest for there to not be a Night's Watch. So... He also strikes me as the kind of person who, although understanding and respect for the Night's Watch and its purpose has clearly declined over the centuries, since anyone actually believed that the others were a real threat... Stannis strikes me as the kind of person who at least has enough respect for tradition to want that to continue. Yes. And certainly now having listened to Jon Snow, he would probably believe that the others are a real thing and a real threat. Probably. I think that Melisandre would actually help on that front. She probably would be very willing to buy into the narrative about the dangers of darkness and cold and... Oh, hearing that there was some kind of actual incarnation of cold and darkness. Yeah. She would leap on that in a second and say... Where do I sign? These are the very messengers of the false god, you know. Of course they're real. In answer to your original question about Jon Snow... I think he probably gets a dressing down. Maybe Alice Thorne comes around at him again. I don't know. But I don't think he's going to be the next one on the fire or anything. No. It was pretty clear from a lot of the shots of the crowd. They weren't into it the way that Solis was. No. They were sitting there going, this is kind of horrific. Well, there wasn't And any... we kill people for a living. This is kind of horrific. Yeah. Apart from Solis, no one there is happy. No. I expect Melisandre probably is, but I don't think we see her actually in the crowd shots. But, Yeah. No one there is really happy to be witnessing what's no. happening. It's all pretty horrible. We didn't see Arya. In we didn't this see episode. a bunch of people. We didn't see any Dawn. We didn't see any Arya. The small portion of the Pod and Brienne show that we got was insufficient for me to feel satisfied. <laughs> well, I was going to ask: Do you think specifically to do with Arya? Do you think that was left out of this episode because she is such a major character and they just didn't have the room to give her enough screen time to do her justice? Maybe. I think that's basically right. When Arya arrives where she's going, it's a whole new landscape for them to introduce to us. Mm. They can't do that through dribs and drabs, I don't think. They need to take the time to introduce us to her new surroundings, to introduce us to the new people she knows, to show us where she is now. So I guess it makes sense to hold that off till they can do it justice. Mm. There's now so many characters in so many locations. Mm. I think there's going to be quite a few episodes this season where... They can only have time to show us a portion of whatever's going on. Yeah. Do you think we're going to see Gendry this season? He was conspicuously absent last season. The last we saw was him rowing away from Dragonstone, mm-hmm. I think, in a boat. In a dinghy, it looked like. Well, I know whether or not we're going to see Gendry this oh, season. Okay. So I'm not going to say anything. <laughs> Alright. Well, for the record, I hope we do, because Gendry's lovely. What a nice young man. What a nice young man. What did you think of the episode, generally? I thought it was a good season opener. I think it picked up on most of the things that you would have wanted to know immediately after the season finale of season four. Mm-hmm. You know, the immediate aftermath of Tywin's death, for example. To know that he really is dead. I mean, that's pretty much the first question. Because, you know, yes, you see him die, but there's always that question, isn't there? And they answered it in the, the second scene. You see his body lying there with the pebbles yeah. on his eyelids. So we see that. 
we see what happens to Mance Raider and we also see Daenerys going and checking on her dragons when in episodic time, I think she only locked them up one episode ago. So they did all the things that you would want in a season opener, apart from some characters who they clearly just didn't have time for. Yes. I think they gave us enough to keep us going for the most pressing questions. Yes. I feel like next episode we're probably going to get introduced to the two new locations, which are Bravos and Dawn. Yes. I'm so looking forward to Dawn. I'm so looking forward to meeting the Sand Snakes. Yes. And for those of you who don't know who the Sand Snakes are, Kate, do you want to give us just a little bit of background? Oberyn Martell, who... His head was he, all exploding some, some last season. Some may remember from last season. <laughs> his daughters, who are of varying ages and varying mothers, are called the Sand Snakes. They are feared warriors and... I mean, some of them are very young, so less so for them, but considered to be dangerous women for various reasons. They're very different because they have a whole lot of different mothers and they're an interesting group of people, but the unifying factor for all of them is that they are dangerous women. And you can imagine they're not that chuffed about the outcome of the duel. Yes. So do we take it that Oberon was quite fond of his daughters? He wasn't fond in a Lannister way of his daughters. But no, no, in, in a normal fathery kind yes, of way. <laughs> yes, he took a very active role in turning them into dangerous people. That was mm. his way of bonding with his daughters. <laughs> the other important thing to know about them and about him is he was the brother to the Prince of Dawn, the ruler of Dawn. The Crown Prince? It's interesting. They the never primary su- prince. <laughs> they never surrendered no. the people of Dawn. No. They actually defeated the original Targaryen invaders. Mm. They never surrendered. When they finally joined the Seven Kingdoms, they did so through marriage. Mm. So two Martell siblings married two Targaryen siblings. And that's how the houses were joined, and that's how Dawn joined the Seven Kingdoms. And because of that, they retained the title of prince. And there's a rule that... In Dawn, Dawnish law will prevail over the law of the Seven Kingdoms. Mm. And particularly when the Targaryens are on the throne, they're very loyal. They're in on the kingdom, but they're in in a sort of partnership way. And the ruler of Dawn is still a prince and is still much more of a ruler than the ruling families of any of the other old kingdoms. Mm. Martell is the family name. Oberyn Martell was a younger brother. Mm. His older brother... Doran is the current Prince of Dawn. Does he have any other brothers? No. And the Sand Snakes are therefore the nieces of the current ruler of Dawn. It's also worth noting that in Dawn, Sand is used as a last name in the same way that Snow is used in the North and Flowers is used in Highgarden, so it's to indicate being a bastard. Mm. So hence the Sand Snakes. Dawn's much more socially progressive. That's right. So being a bastard in Dawn is much less of a social barrier to progress, success, people treating you like a decent human being, Mm. the same sort of prejudice that exists towards bastards in other parts of the Seven Kingdoms isn't experienced in Dawn. They also seem to be quite a bit more liberal when it comes to extramarital things and a bit more open about having mistresses and lovers of either gender. Yes, that's definitely true. I wouldn't want to give the impression that Oberon is a template for all people from Dawn. He was considered quite out there, even by the Dawnish. <laughs> Which but he was able there, to be, since he was a prince. <laughs> he was able to be since he was a prince, but he was also able to be because he was from Dawn, and mm. out there in a way that the people of Dawn were quite happy about. 
Yeah. He wasn't the shame of the kingdom. The people no. of Dawn loved him. They probably went, you are the best of what we are. Exactly. <laughs> having sex with literally anyone who happens to take your fancy. Yes. And yes. having lots and lots of children everywhere. Yeah. Who you teach to become deadly warriors. Yeah. We love all of this. So yes, I'm very much looking forward to seeing Dawn. It's going to be quite exciting. I'm very much looking forward to seeing the Sand Snakes. I just have this picture in my head of the Sand Snakes wreaking all kinds of revenge for what happens to their father. And I don't want to imagine too much about what might happen, but my palate is wetted in anticipation. Splendid. So what would you give this episode out of ten? Well, I guess it was a bit of a building episode. And just to leave room for later episodes. I think I'm going to give it a 7. Okay, that was what I was thinking as well. Certainly very enjoyable. But of course, Game of Thrones has very much its own scale. You know, a 7 in Game of Thrones is like a 9 for most other series. Absolutely. (laughs) So yeah, 7 I think sounds about right. Leaving plenty of room for other episodes to blow my socks off. Exactly. What was your moment of the episode? What was your moment of awesomeness? Or just favourite thing that happened? I love Syrian Hines, who plays Mance Raider. So I enjoyed every single second he was on screen. But I'm not going to choose that. I just wanted to <laughs> say in passing that he's fabulous. Apart from the humour of Tyrion upchucking. <laughs> definitely Vari's second speech. And the moment where he convinces Tyrion to give this a go. I really love this whole Varys has his own team thing. There's some extra layer to all of this mm-hmm. going on. And I feel like this is a moment that really moves the story up into another level of politics and intrigue. Mm. So I'm in favour. What about you? What was your favourite moment? Well, now I'm getting a taste of what it's been like to be you for the past few months, because you've had first crack and picked what I would have picked as <laughs> my favourite moment, so I'm going to have to pick something else. I think just because it was a confirmation of something that I've been expecting for ages, I reckon it was Daenerys going down to see her dragons and having zero control. That's probably my pick for the episode. It was an amazing looking moment too. It was. I quite like that we're not seeing Drogon. Yeah. Because now there's just this constant anticipation of, when is Chekhov's dragon showing up? And how big is he going to be? He was very definitely the biggest of the three before, Mm -hmm. and presumably he's been off filling his belly. It's quite established in the lore of the stories that a captive dragon grows much smaller than Than one that's free-ranging. Much like chickens. You know in some parts of the world, chickens have learned how to fly properly? Mm -hmm. The ones which have escaped and turned wild over the generations have gradually learned how to fly again, like properly, not just flutter up to a branch on a tree, but actually learn to fly. I've never seen any footage of it, but one day I'd like to see a chicken flying. That would be there was funny. That great, there was that great <laughs> documentary about it, where they all escape from a prison camp. Yeah, I'm not sure if that was a documentary. Well, that wraps it up for this episode. We hope you enjoyed it. If you have any feedback, please send it to tppfeedback at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter as at tppfeedback, and you can find us on Facebook by doing a search for The People's Podcast. We'd love to hear from you, unless it's cruel. Then you can fuck right off. Bye! Fuckity bye! The revolution will not fight germs that may cause bad breath. The revolution will put you in the driver's seat. The revolution will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised. The revolution will be no rerun, brothers. The revolution will be live.
No. Need to touch up on the roots there, Tyrion. <laughs> what a little bitch. <laughs> <age. laughs> oh, God. <gasps> what a creepy question. <laughs> Are you a virgin? And a creepy <laughs> answer to his answer. I never trust in Paris. I have not worn. He hates him so much. You're very respectful. I'm very hungry. <laughs> Perhaps. Perhaps you'll have Perhaps I'll invite Grandma to stay a lot. <laughs> I wish you good fortune in the wars to come. Title drop. Can you a little less crazy, please? Uh. <laughs> oh, she's a crazy woman. <laughs> oh, wow. Mercy. Legend. Well. <laughs>